Welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhan. This is the third of the Beethoven episodes. The theory of archetypes, as developed by Carl Jung and later by his school of analytical psychology, envisages archetypes as fundamental, often unconscious drivers of the human psyche that can deeply influence our thought and behaviour. Some, not all, are rooted in bodily instincts and can find their representations in mythology or even the assumed characteristics of planets, for example, Mars, the god of war, or Venus, the goddess of love. In the spiritual realm, and therefore some considerable distance from instinctual bodily forces, there are archetypes at work which are found widely across the world's cultures and religions, and were explored in Volume 5 of Jung's collected works, Symbols of Transformation. The hero myth is one of them. But this archetype is now working at the level of human consciousness, reflecting upon its own nature, its capacity for growth, development, change, in which the hero myth plays a prominent part. The death and rebirth of the hero, so often recounted in these myths, is a symbol of the death of the old consciousness and the rebirth of the new, a perennial motif in the cultures of civilizations, societies and individuals. My argument is that Beethoven felt this archetype very deeply in himself, as well as in the tumultuous period in which he lived. It saturates this third symphony, which is called the Eroica. Napoleon was one aspect of the Eroic, at the military and political levels, but not just as an outstanding general, but because he was bringing new consciousness to the age he lived in. Although the symphony was originally dedicated to Napoleon, as you will recall, when Beethoven learnt that Napoleon had crowned himself emperor, he was so enraged that he tore Bonaparte's name from the front page. In other words, it was not Napoleon's generalship that led to Beethoven's belief that he represented the heroic, but it was the liberating consciousness that he and many others felt Napoleon was bringing to Europe and which Beethoven felt was betrayed. Nevertheless, the symphony survives perfectly well without Napoleon's name on the front page for many listeners were to become identified with Beethoven's personal heroic struggle, and beyond that, its enormous stimulus to their own development, though perhaps less heroic. We might also feel that this dynamic applies to the struggles and changes of the societies we live in. Beethoven's music has come to be widely loved and admired for many reasons, but one of them, I believe, because it taps into the core of this archetype as it operates at these different levels, both individual and collective, and it still operates in this way today. Even for Jungians, and those most committed to the theory of archetypes, it may not be easy to see them being represented in music. Jung himself was very much focused on how they manifested in mythology and religion, as well as the visual field, where the symbol could be analysed, for example the mandala as representative of the archetype of the self. I appreciate that many people who love Beethoven's music may find such interpretation disturbing. I am aware that there are those who believe that music is a thing in itself, rather than being thematic or representative of something else. And yes, it can be that, and this is only my point of view after all. But I am arguing that the obvious references to battles, Napoleon and struggle, are not the core of the music, but its outward form, at least in the first movement. After all, we do know that Beethoven was going deaf, 
that he was very disappointed in love, that he did contemplate suicide, that this symphony is entitled The Eroica, that the second movement is a funeral march, and so on. I am not supposing too much when I interpret that the symphony is full of movements upwards out of darkness, that Beethoven rises from the grave, as it were, and I don't believe it is too much of a stretch, although here it depends on one's personal experience, that Beethoven is rewarded with a gnosis or a cosmic vision, which is his link to the transcendent. This is more difficult to see, but if this is accepted, then putting these pieces together, we can say that the heroic, in the manner Beethoven presents it, which is a mythological way, is the experience of a symbolic death followed by an ascent or rebirth, which essentially becomes an experience of the transcendent that reorientates consciousness altogether. This is my central argument. Those of you who have followed the earlier podcasts on Young and the Gnostics will be aware such knowledge of the mysteries, as they were termed in ancient Greece and the Near East, is essentially a death and resurrection experience culminating in gnosis, that is, knowledge, not in the ordinary sense of the term, but as revelation, epiphany, knowledge of the essential nature of the cosmos and our place in it. The Third Symphony is not then about thematic representation of the heroic in any ordinary sense. It is the realisation of the transcendent by an individual who passes through the gates of death. I believe this archetype permeates a great deal of Beethoven's work. The experience Beethoven demonstrates in the Third Symphony was profoundly formative of his whole spiritual vision. Thank you once again to BBC Radio 3, whose recording in 2005 was made available on the Internet Archive under the Creative Commons label. Also, heartfelt gratitude to Rogan and Susan Taylor, dear friends of deep memory, who in 1975 communicated to me on a wintry evening in front of a roaring fire in Liverpool, England, the essence of this wonderful symphony and the spirit of Beethoven, who has been a joy and inspiration to me all my life. So with no more ado, let us proceed. Before we tackle the final movements of the Third Symphony, I wish to remind you of the main themes of the first two large-scale movements. The first movement starts as it means to continue. Seemingly two almost violent blows and then a major theme is announced. There is a lead-up to the conflict. This is followed by battle-like sounds. Now there is a Beethoven pause. He is blocked, but returns to the basic theme.
he then doubts, retreats and deliberates. Next there is advance and breakthrough and then an amazingly gentle, tender resolution in the music. The second movement with its famous funeral march fast forwards to the actual funeral of the hero. We can imagine the audience in Beethoven's day being taken back by the audacity of this symphony. Here Beethoven puts his emotional and spiritual journey at the centre of the third symphony, his suffering, great loss of his hearing, his descent, his meeting with death, for it can't be Napoleon's who is very much alive. The more sensitive of the audience may see not only Beethoven's struggles, not only their own, but something of the heroic in a more archetypal sense, perhaps the heroic in human consciousness that has to descend and be reborn through death. A number of attempts at arising a resurrection from the grave now occur. now a return to the grave. The music pauses but then starts an ascent with real grit, even anger. This is Beethoven rising from the depths of his depression. Anger is often required to rise from depression anger at one's wasted life, one's misery of being a victim, a stirring of a fight for a reborn life. Determination now grips Beethoven as he rises from his potential death on a solemn drumbeat. Mm -hmm. 
my experience of listening to this, Beethoven now receives a triumphant vision of the cosmos, its magnificence and beauty, and the place of life within it. This is his gnosis, his revelation, actually, to my mind, surprisingly similar to Jung's revelation at the end of the Red Book. You may recall in podcast 13, Jung and Gnosticism, that at the end of the Red Book, Philemon touches Jung's eyes and opens his gaze, and he is shown an immeasurable mystery of the dark earth and the starry heavens, in the form of a woman covered by a sevenfold mantle of stars. I am also reminded of Job's vision of the cosmos, given by Yahweh, chapter 38 of the book of Job of the Old Testament. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations therefore fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He pauses on the edge of his epiphany and, according to the way I listen to this, there is a special revelation of the essence of a divine intelligence. He now returns from his vision, for one must return to this ordinary life, this existence based in the ego and the personality. But all has changed. His rising from the grave and his vision of the transcendent is to provide the core of his creativity for the rest of his life. Incredible, he might even face his deafness. It may seem strange, but the experience of gnosis, of such revelation, is a type of download, to use a modern term, It's a vast transmission which can be tapped into for the rest of the individual's life. This experience of the death and resurrection of the hero is a central archetype of the rebirth of consciousness out of the darkness, fully, consciously, magnificently demonstrated in this symphony. Now to the third movement. The element of innovation and great surprise marks the third symphony from beginning to end. To remind you, 
While having much of the classical form, the normal duration of the symphony has been lengthened considerably because Beethoven has so much to say. The style of the classical symphony, formal, Apollonian, higher aesthetics, little disturbing darkness, has been replaced by an intense focus on the emergence of the individual and a Dionysian uprising. Politics, God forbid, has burst on centre stage. An extraordinary conception of mankind's relation to the transcendent is demonstrated. An erupting force that has nothing to do with the long traditions of Christianity, with its stress on humility and repentance. This symphony is not only the emergence of the Romantic movement, with mankind's relationship to the sublime, especially in nature, but has pagan vitality permeating it. The spirit of the great mystery religions of Greece, Egypt and the Near East are saturating this symphony, since at its heart is a death and resurrection archetype, so typical of the ancient spiritual traditions of those cultures, which can turn any spiritually attuned person inside out. Beethoven commands our complete attention. This is revolutionary on so many levels. Scherzos are often light, playful and vigorous, but this third movement we now present is explosive, with wide-ranging dynamics from pianissimo to fortissimo. It only lasts five to six minutes. Some conductors treat it as a relief between the enormous weight of the second and fourth movements. Others take it at a very fast pace, so it is a breathtaking outburst of invention and mastery after the brooding Marcia Funebre. I can listen to any interpretation, but my essential feeling, mythological and musical, is that it is a release of immense creativity as a result of the transcendent experience of death, resurrection and new vision in the second movement. Let us hear some of the music of this scherzo. Firstly, a wonderful freedom of energy and tension opens this movement. theme is repeated various times with varying dynamics and with different parts of the orchestra. Then, in pure delight, Beethoven changes rhythm, increasing the excitement. Playfully, he moves to the horns, changing the theme somewhat. This is repeated and he interweaves with his developing theme. He maintains suspense, enjoying his power. He plays with the orchestra, where will he go next? And then leaps into a glorious playful rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> 
only to end as dramatically and suddenly as he began. difficult not to laugh with joy at this creative and life-enhancing masterpiece of a scherzo. So, if that's a scherzo, what is to come? The fourth movement opens with a tremendous declaration of intent. The main theme is then mischievously picked out in the strings. Already this movement is full of surprises. The beautiful theme has developed. further developed. And then leads to a wonderful pastoral-like dance of celebration, as if the rebirth of the corn god, the new life, the fertility of the earth. This is the joy of the creative. Once again, at this point, most composers would have been more than happy to round off. Happy ending, audience satisfied, life is good, bills paid. But no, typical Beethoven, there is another dimension entirely to what he is doing. And this is why I am convinced he was immersed, lived personally and demonstrated the archetype of the hero myth completely. He now does one of his pauses. Still lovely music, but this is Beethoven looking for the next completely surprising development, which no one could have anticipated. starts another ascent. Up he goes and repeats his cosmic vision which occurred you remember at the end of the second movement. The heart of the symphony and his transcendent vision which now is a peon of praise 
to the divine creative intelligence. The fourth movement is a set of variations on the theme, which Beethoven had used in earlier compositions, for example as the finale of the ballet The Creatures of Prometheus in 1801. You may remember my brief reference to this in the previous podcast. The heroic theme again, the mythological Prometheus who stole the fire, spirit and intelligence, from the Olympians so as to create the human race and for which he was cruelly punished. For Zeus feared the overthrow of the Olympians. Could this threat be from the new race of mankind just created? Is there something in the creative intelligence, the spirit of mankind that is created by the gods, but at odds with them? Is mankind's creative spirit destined to overthrow the gods? He now slows down, preparing for the ending, with a prayer of gratitude for the deliverance of creativity and joy and happiness again. Okay, he has completely taken us by surprise, presenting his cosmic vision once again. Surely, surely this is enough, more than enough. We are overwhelmed. But no, up he goes again. Remember his resurrection in the third movement when I suggested that to my imagination he touched the divine out in the starry spaces, the core of the symphony I feel and believe to be his transcendent essence. 
onward and upward he goes, like a rocket breaking the gravitational pull of the earth, taking the audience into an experience of cosmic intensity. He is now past the limits of personality and its earthly force, out beyond the planet, as if witnessing the impersonal essence of things, in direct touch with the divine intelligence, at least as near as humans can get. He finishes in an extraordinary joyous outpouring. Note the two hammer-like blows that finish the symphony as it began. There is so much humour in this masterpiece. From earthly battle to transcendent bliss. Our next podcast will explore examples of the death and resurrection myth. And to follow this extraordinary Beethoven symphony, we will include a myth that has had extensive and lasting impact on a great section of humanity. That of Jesus Christ. I hope you can join me. By the way, this podcast you are listening to now is released on December the 21st, 2019. So I wish you all happy Christmas. May you contemplate the myths that have motivated billions. May you experience their beauty and truth. May you let them into your heart. <laughs>